welcome to Mandy Taggart. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about your story, Byrne. Oh, hello. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your writing? Yes, my name is Mandy Taggart. I'm a writer principally of short stories. Started off writing flash fiction round about 10 years ago now. I've always written, but I started writing it in earnest about 10 years ago. The stories I like to write tend to be set in a world that's maybe a step or two to the left of the world that we're, uh, that we're familiar with here. I like to write about what's in the shadows, what might be just lurking in the background perhaps, those things that we kind of, the stories that we tell ourselves to try to give ourselves maybe a bit of extra edge to life. And I've been doing that for around about 10 years. I have had various stories published, some in anthologies. I was a winner of the Michael McClaverty Award run by the Lindenhall Library here in Belfast in 2012 for a story, Ways of the North. Various support from the Arts Council over the years, which has been very valuable. I'm part of a community of writers based in Flowerfield Arts Centre in Port Stewart. Again, about for the past 10 years, that's been an excellent focus for writing. It's been an excellent way of giving energy and a bit of motivation as well. That at that time was facilitated by Bernie McGill. How has your, what you said you started with flash fiction, do you still write flash fiction or is it, have you moved on to longer pieces? Very occasionally I do still write flash fiction. I found that that amount of crystallisation did suit my writing style. I'm a very edity kind of writer. I would be very much wanting to get every word in a sentence just where it should be. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Having read your stories, it feels like every word is so thought out. And I like to have every you, word in its place. And flash fiction, I think, as a learning process was excellent for me. And it's very, very much an art form in itself as well. I then found that the story started to grow in a more organic kind of way. So the story I have in Still Words Turning is 5,000 words long. So it's expanded a fair amount. And that was a really interesting thing for us, seeing all the stories come in. And because we hadn't set any word length or criteria for length, just the different lengths and the different things that people can do with stories. Yeah. Do you know once you start writing it, this is going to be a long thing? Or No, the story is telling me that as I'm telling the story. I think it just a story just has to be as long as it has to be. It, I think that some things can be expressed very in a very crystallised kind of way, but other things do need a bit of space to ramble about. And how do stories come to you? Do they come as a character or as a, an image? or That's interesting. Sometimes I get a phrase, just a single phrase, that keeps in my head. When I was writing Ways of the North a number of years ago, that just came the first phrase of the story is what came to me at the start. In the case of Burn, which is the story here, it came from a single image of a man lying face down on a bridge looking through a crack down to the water below. And then you start asking, what what does he see? How did he get there? And under a bridge there may be various unsavoury things. And that's, it just came from that single image. The, the bridge in fact is a, it's in a real place, it's well a, a rather corrupted version of a park in my hometown. Coleraine, where several decades ago now, perhaps the park in the centre of town wasn't quite so sanitised or landscaped as it's, it is now, and there's always things happening in parks. So the bridge there, I don't actually remember it in detail, but I was convinced, I knew for a fact when I was four or five years old, that this was the bridge from the Billy Goat's Gruff, the one that you go trip crap over, and if there's a Billy Goat on the top, then there's something underneath. So fascinating how childhood experiences 
reemerge in story they writing. They absolutely do. That's not, in fact, the only childhood experience that's been recreated in this story. There are. I actually at one point fell in into the okay. burn that goes through the little park, and that features as well in the story. So that's fascinating that that a story that is really exploring something otherworldly in in one sense is actually still drawing very much from sort of biographical details, those small details that completely change into something else. Absolutely. I always say that on some level, everything you write is true in some way, whether it's reflecting something or whether it's an actual fact. I think that's definitely the case. Fascinating. It's brilliant. Would you like to read for us a little, an extract from yes, the story? Yes, indeed. I can do that. Thank you very much. This will be an extract from Burn by Mandy Taggart. Midsummer night and not the Shakespearean kind. At the final dropping of darkness, Billy McLaughlin sprawled face down on the wooden deck of the bridge in Donnelly's Park, whilst yahoos of the borough stumbled and roared their way homeward up to the heights. Beneath him slid the spumy burn, less of a meander than an invitation to drown yourself. A sour, leaking handful of a place was Donnelly's Park, cut within the foggiest and most sodden hollow of town. Founded by a local unworthy a century ago, it was formerly the ditch beneath beleaguered ramparts, still earlier a ferny basin of pagan repute. Billy was thirty, by now fully adept in the reverse miracle of turning wine into water. Six weeks later, he would be obituarised in the Herald as a well-known local character, a dignified term for being mocked by children for chanting to yourself and spinning twigs into the burn. An old-fashioned drinker, whilst his contemporaries had raved from glue to speed and on to prison, or else mortgages and decency. Now, with trousers soaked in his cheek stubble scribbling slime, he paid mind to rare wisdom from his mother, Maury, solid-armed, bitter, widowed at 42. Once you're in your arse, she said in his head, you'll never rise again, not till you've taken stock of what put you down there in the first place. Maury herself had been put down by a joiner's van before she'd seen 50. Billy took stock. On the bridge deck there brooded a unique species of mouldering slime, composed of trodden dog shit, green algae, extrusions of slug, the piss of man, bird and beast. The only grade of grip presented to boots and tottery heels was in the narrowness of the planks, a tickering under pram wheels, a trip trap under the feet. It was the best sport in town during those three wilderness years that hang between earnestness and irony in the deployment of council play equipment. The children had it polished to a lethal shine. He'd hit the bridge at a reel, scoring a calligraphic gouge across the slime, had narrowly missed clanking the railings with his forehead or sliding between them into the scum and beckoning waterweeds. He was nearly skinny enough. But he didn't find it unpleasant in that state of drink where the chill was welcome, the slime velvet and intimate. The bridge lay tender under his cheek, arched like a stretching animal. You could nearly hear the groan out of it. The stench in his nostrils was closer to the sea than he'd been in a while. Billy grimaced. He put out his tongue and stroked it along the deck in front of him, tasting buckfast and primordial swamp. He'd once spent an August night on the grass not far from here, beneath the syphilitic ash locally dubbed Baldy's Tree. 
fallen asleep with terrible poetry in his soul and woken with the arse eaten off him. He should move. He shifted his hands to shoulder level, took stock a moment longer, then braced to shove himself upright. Spied as he braced, a shaft of clear daylight streaming upwards out of the burn through a chink in the boards three feet ahead of him. The shaft simmered with bitey flies, ravenous for arses, and around it, nothing but the night. Billy wriggled sealwise towards this phenomenon, caught the twittle of bird song. At the join of two boards, he spied a pale, peeled crack the colour of straw by a stiletto heel that evening freshly split. He spat out slime, fitted his eye against the crack, was blinded at first, then his sight adjusted. And then Billy no longer heard the yawl of the yahoos beyond the railings, because he was yawling to beat the lot of them, all by himself. The next morning, a figure was observed trolling with intent the burnside in Donnelly's Park a good three hours before he was usually abroad. Billy couldn't remember how he'd got home, but it had been at speed. He'd lain haunted half the night by the vision. A storybook devil with horns, goatish beard and hind legs had peered up through the crack and beckoned him whilst litter eddied and caught in its dingy black tailcoat. Now, by the burnside with the folded knee look of a skinny man, Billy brooded. On the grass where the bridge base met the bank, he frowned through the barrier into the weedy darkness where the burn disappeared. Now, by the burnside, with a folded knee look of a skinny man, Billy brooded. On the grass where the bridge base met the bank, he frowned through the barrier into the weedy darkness where the burn disappeared. Three weeks beard on him. A wee cap and fishing rod would have set him off rightly. Yonder slime was powerful stuff if it had you seen the devil. He'd make his fortune if he could find the knack of it. The yahoos would love it. Trip of a lifetime, boys, have you swing in your pants in no time. He'd have been up there harvesting already, if it hadn't been for a childed young pair, casting themselves into some fuck-perfect little scene, flicking twigs over the railings, skittering across to watch them spin away, performing for each other, whilst the child lolled dribbling in a buggy, more interested in mulching its mouth round the sleeve of its cardigan. The child began fretting, and the couple flung a final twig, dragged back to reality. The woman fussed with the buggy straps. Billy stood, feeling last night's drink churn inside him. Waited while they cleared the deck, cracked from Baldy's tree a twig for the scraping, and felt the ground bend underneath him while he did it. Up on deck, he knelt and kicked again through the crack, but saw only the pitch and shimmer of the burn. A passing pair of young fellas dared each other to boot him in the hole. Make us the other way, Mohammed. Aye, 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 Fumbled in his pocket now, tugged out the scraping twig. Billy began scoring it across the beslimed planks, tapping the scrapings into his palm again and again until he'd curled off a hearty amount. There was the job. He took a lavish lick along his hand, felt himself change as the salty slime melted over his teeth. He is himself at three, a wee snot of a thing, stupid navy woollen coat on him. On the grassy slope a girl with trailing hair straddles a pair of lazy denim legs. His chin is rashy under the coat, 
too warm and heavy for this weather. A slope for rolling down, tumble and bump and over and under, grass and sky and daisies and sky, until he drops half a foot and is suddenly engulfed, cold closing over the crown of his head, one more vast turn underwater with thunder in his ears, and then no up and no down for long seconds until his feet find purchase and he heaves himself to a miraculous dripping stand. Ma! It creeps out as a weak whisper. Parked on a bench at the head of the slope, Maury uncrosses her legs, tighted calves swishing one over the other. Turns a page of the herald that riffles in the breeze and feels up her forearm for sunburn. The current threatens his balance, forces him sideways, waterweed lascivious on the backs of his knees, immobile in his wrappings like a comedy baby. The coat has taken on half the burn. On flattened ground halfway up the slope, the old roundabout shudders around with nobody on it. Alongside him, the underparts of the bridge loom and ooze cold as a bat cave. He spits bitter burn water, struggles to wade, turns helplessly with the driving current, losing his feet now, and under the bridge he sees the goaty devil. The devil winks and points one fingernail at the slope towards Billy's useless ma. Billy finds his voice, opens his mouth and howls until the long-haired girl leaps off her boy and charges, screaming towards him. He rises from the burn as if baptised. The vision dispersed. Billy took his twig and flung it into the burn, still licking round the inside of his mouth. Felt within himself other visions loosen beneath the clag and silt that covered them. Fortune or not, he wouldn't be wasting this one on the yahoos, that was for sure. Billy crouched a good while longer on the bridge, and the burn flushed on. This whole valley was about the drainage of land. The burn a glorified ditch like all watercourses from Donnelly's Park to the Nile Delta. Trickle or surge it had run since prehistory. Down from the boglands where people lay disappeared in ditches, gathering as it went bone and seep from the mount sharded delf patterned with fragmented flowers, dragging down what it lacked the strength to carry forward, sending up vapours, drinking them back, steaming them upwards again. Here and there, along its flatter courses, it was dammed long ago into dank pools for the retting of flax, all abandoned afterwards to lurk behind the fences of low-lying householders and threaten them in wet weather. They dredged it when Billy was eight, hauling up trolleys, putrid trainers, weighted sacks of tiny feline skeletons. One day a rusted bicycle lay on the bank, one pedal up and one down, as if an invisible man were bracing his foot to ride. There's the water cycle, said Maury, who'd been educated. What's that mean? Carry this. From between her fingers he took the plastic fishmonger's bag, cold with trout skin. Three miles down from Donnelly's Bridge, the burn joined the main trunk river and within it powered ahead, through the flood barriers out to the estuary, where tourists laughed and pointed at an otter, ripping the head off a salmon at the crossing of two waters. Fit for work! It was a fucking joke! But that was how it went now, with diseases of the mind. It had been a bitter morning. Billy kicked and swore his way up the street, took malevolent joy in shattering the puddles that lay glaring like fallen angels at the sky that had flung them out. He cut across the railway line, doubled back through Donnelly's Park. 
It was where he'd always been headed. No denim-clad courting here these days if you didn't count the two Jack Russells riding each other up by the roundabout. Earthworks performed for the centenary had sanitised the place, shallowed the slope, barred the banks to stop any more untended woolly agents flinging themselves in. The shrubby ground at the head of the slope was gentrified now by pergolas and trailing foliage. Wedding couples sometimes came to have their photographs taken. There was another fucking joke. This hollow had never been any place for weddings, unless it was over the brush you were going. To delay the pleasure, he broke off a twig, let himself feel the crack and peel of it, turned and examined it, nubbed and grey. Ash trees dropped their summer twigs already brittle. In winter, there would be blown keys from Baldy's tree. In spring, rotted florets that Billy had thought were broccoli for years. And in October, a giant fungal growth, dark and bulbous, big as a head, would bob in the central fork. Billy retched. He tossed the twig into the water, imagined a grey hand that rose and plucked it away with the grace of an Arthurian illustration, the gentleman of the burn. He inclined his head at the receding fingers. A stone smacked him on the leg. A skitter of bastards from the heights whooped and clattered away. Only wee ones today, and Billy ignored them. He could put it off no longer. He climbed to the bridge deck, scraped with fingernail, and sucked. A whiff of burned stink from under the bridge, blood and sulphur. The clouds separated. Light cracked through like the white of an egg. Eight or nine. Back seat of the Honda, head heavy with stale smoke. Maury parks on a double yellow by the park railings, and they sit for a grey half hour, waiting for Da. Can I play in the park? The rain's coming on. Half an hour more, and Maury heaves herself out, knots a plastic hood under her chin. I'm away to find him. Ma, I need the but she's left and locked him in. Splatches of wet darken her coat as she stumps away, one shoulder higher than the other. Water hammers the roof of the Honda, swept up river silt and microscopic fossils skittering down the windscreen. To his left, the park railings. He's desperate, kneels up and watches the sky blow sideways to distract himself from thoughts of pee. Louder still the rain, in waves now, while gutters dribble and gulp down by the car wheels. Billy presses his nose and huffs the runnelling window, trying not to think about other things that splatter and flow. He wipes away fog, and in the dark nook of the bridge sees the devil waving. His loins spasm. The devil grins, springs up, unzips and pisses long and lavishly, a low arc that catches light and plunges deep as water slides over his hairy, goaty knees. Billy can stand it no longer. He seizes the window lever and churns it down, wriggles his skinny self outside, unzips at the last second and sends piss drops scattering along the railings while the rain blatters down on his head. And here comes Maury at last. Here comes Da. Archibald with a stagger, shamed out of the forge in front of all his cronies, a brown tweed cap planted flat and furious on his head. Billy's hauled by the arm and his shorts yanked down, bare arsed and soaked concrete with blows raining down on shoulders, legs and back. Sorry, Da, I'm sorry! 
The cat falls off Archibald, leaving his head as pink and naked as Billy's arse. Filthy, way bastards what you are. And then Billy catches a briny taste around his lips, swallows deep, twists the memory and pulls it around. Stop hitting me. What? Stop hitting me. It wasn't my fault. It was your fault. The taste fades. He still gets battered, but the blows fall on squared shoulders. Sure, that's enough, Archie. That's enough. Not Maury's mercy intervening, but the sight of a traffic warden striding towards them. Billy is bundled into the Honda and they skid away like TV detectives. Receding in the rear window, the devil shakes off, zips up and blows Billy a kiss. It was gone and a new sun was evaporating puddles all over town, back to clouds at last, souls of water rising. He knew he'd only altered the story, not the truth. But what was the difference, after all? Better to pick and choose what you carried along with you. The kid who spoke up for himself. The lucky boy springing and drowned from the burn. As July opened, Billy squatted in his fetid living room, tongue out over a writing pad lifted from the 99p store, striving to render the devil in splinter-leaded colouring pencils. You'll never make an artist, said Maury in his head, in the harsh voice she'd developed by the time he was eleven, gall in her now, sick of Archibald's taste for the devilment. She was always just coming in when he got home from school, and more and more there was a smell of fish off her. She filled the sink with dull, scraped scales, cut tails like halved mermaids flung down for the cat. Slick, hinged muscles with insides like the sticky magazines up amongst the bushes in Donnelly's Park. The fuck's that? Archibald poked a thick finger. The only thing on offer, said Maury. Upped and slammed out before he could answer, left nothing behind but the flat, hanging stink. Billy and Da, with their forearms the one length, sat stranded at the table. Archibald fumbled about with the tweed cap, shoulders twitching with the want to be away. You're a good boy, son. Am I? Cap going on now, situation resolved. So I know you'll be grand here on your own, won't you now? The door closed behind him. Opened again a second later, the capped head dipping through. Clean them fish pans before Mammy gets back. Away at the devilment, the both of them, leaving Billy up to the red elbows and foulness and grease. Maury only left off the fish on the day she was widowed. Screamed in her neighbour's kitchen years later when a freshly flowered trout leapt up in the pan. In the middle of July, the council came and hosed down the bridge, amid dire talk in the herald of broken ankles and litigation. Billy huddled on the bank and prayed to the devil for dank weather as flies doted over the burn. Shivered with longing, wept like a poet into the water, while the young boys chalked pentagrams under the pergola. Stronger on him even than the pull of drink. Billy was blessed with smears of green on the seventeenth day. He dropped to his knees and took it, freshly tongued off the spine of a groaning bridge. Fourteen, shuddering, desperate for allies. Gus, the razor-scalped leader of the Hellburners, takes the measure of Billy, sees him skinny but strong. 
Gus was a Gary until he took to the mushrooms one fair October night and bit a policeman on the leg. Fungus the bogeyman ever since. A fast-laughing mania to him, his father a rabid street preacher of brimstone and fire. Billy comes to him, ranked from a run across town, after being met by Maury from school, hauled into a flat above a fish shop and introduced to some trout-mouthed fucker she called his uncle Ken. Fuck that! Where's my da? Shrugging off her hand, feeling himself lithe like the young buck in a western, forgetting the end of young bucks everywhere. Sure I'll be your da now. His voice like a hand on Maury, his hand like a fish on her. Steam and stench through the window from the gutters below, where cats growled over slithery innards. She'd brought him to the source. Young Buck Billy, twisting away from the hands and stink, setting himself for the door. Ken, the literal motherfucker, trying to square up to him. You'll stay here. Where's my da? Do what he says, Billy. Billy darted his eyes, looking for the gap to dodge through and run away, and then licked his teeth and found a salty tang. Make me! Saw his face on the level with Ken's. A pike rose and snapped, sudden teeth in the shadows. Make me! Said it again, just for the sound of it. Drew back his arm in slow motion and felt the jaw crack under his fist. Saw the admiration in Maury's face as he turned and stalked away. Billy lay on the deck and roared with satisfaction, flipped round to his belly and scraped right down the plank with his teeth, nipped and lapped it like a lover. Acne cheeks grinned down at him now. More hellburners slink up from nowhere. First, they all crouch behind the gasworks, where Gus shakes tobacco over leaves of white paper and seasons it with drops of a sharp scented oil. It is rolled and passed like a sacrament from fingers to fingers. Then Billy, with velvet skin and rolling vision, stands chin up, feet planted, while Gus whirls a fighting stick over his head. Still as a winter ash, he lets it whisk the hairs across his crown. Passes the test. Last wee fucker took a whitey, says Gus. He's nearly disappointed when the next stage is nothing more than holding his palm over a lighter flame. Lasts well by pretending the hand belongs to somebody else. Gus jerks his chin to show approval. Monty fuck. Away now, just the two of them. A ragged ramble round the hard shoulder of the ring road, telling each other who they'd fuck out of the four McNeil sisters whose knickers hang in the line across the road from school. I'll take their ma, says Billy, and wins a laugh out of Gus. Scrag end of the year, first ice in the air a leaking sky, the moon like oil dropped in water. Billy strokes at burn blisters inflating across his palm, tries to still his head. Doing well. Across the poorhouse graveyard, Gus tells of the headless horse he met by the gates one night, dragging a cart full of bodies. They stand pissing against the memorial stone, daring the souls of the wretched. On round the back of the hospital, the sudden loom of a digger, behind flimsy steel barriers, scramble and hoist into the driver's compartment. Billy closes his eyes and cools his temple against the window, feels the slashing of the seat beside him and lets Gus hear his chuckle of approval, takes the offered knife and makes three long incantatory slashes. The heavy rip of vinyl, foam puckering under his raw knuckles. At a boy, Billy. Good man.
and at last to the head of the slope in Donnelly's Park, where the Hellburners stand waiting. Gus gives his deputies the nod. Just one more thing. Razor-headed smile. A girl steps forward. Gus's cousin, Leanne, with a hair lip, reaches wordlessly for the fly of Billy's trousers. The fuck? He casts about, looking for the trick of it. Do you not want it? Gus with the threat behind the teeth. Trap or not, he's fucked. The childless roundabout creaks and turns. Gus and his deputies evaporate. The same bravado that stilled his hand over the flame holds Billy now amongst autumn-rotted bushes, twigs rasping his arse and his head roaring, a girl's hair chilled with night sweeping his thighs. Just as he claws his fingers deep into the muck, Leanne turns and judders away with a scream, leaving him straining forgotten into empty air. He scrabbles at his trousers, lurches up, and after her, what the fuck did he do wrong? He catches her halfway down the hill, grabs her and she wheels round, shrieking into his face, a sudden smell of piss off her, babbling that she looked aside and saw the devil jerking like a madman, flailing over the grass with his coat tails flipping. Billy turns her loose and lets her run, staggers back and crouches in shadow as Gus and the Hellburners erupt from the bushes and rave down the hill like the blue-arsed hordes of fuckery, charging after the wails of Leanne, miraculously thinking Billy is chasing her. He croaks to himself as they thunder over the bridge, clatter and thump of bodies scaling the railings, dropping to the pavement on the far side and raging on away up into the heights. And then, silence. A queer one, the devil, to be saving your virtue. And if that doesn't sum up Billy's life, nothing ever will. He'd been too caught up in the moment to doctor the memory. Could hardly blame himself. Leanne, his one and only time. So close. Billy whimpered and lapped again the poultry slick of green, scrabbled it like a digging dog, but there wasn't enough. He felt his senses heighten, but the vision was formless as a bag of kittens. He reeled down off the bridge to the bank, scrambled over the barrier, fought his way through knee-high tangle to the chattering lip of the burn, pitched and splashed his way under the bridge and crouched in gloom where the chattering deepened to a hollow rush as the burn surged riverwards. Feet clattered above him. Voices. Wheels. A twig sailed, dropped and was carried rocking past his knees. The childed couple at their games again. He flailed about for an implement, saw what he needed being borne towards him along the burn. A half-rotted piece of timber stained in forest oak, the remnants of somebody's garden fence. The water carried it straight into his hands. Of course it did. And maybe he saw grey fingers slip from round it as he hauled it out. He held it, caber-wise, and gave three mighty knocks on the bridge's wooden underside. Heard screams above him, a sudden run of wheels, the trip-trap of retreating shoes. Billy hugged his knees and rocked under the bridge, laughing like a drain. A black Saturday, near the end of July. The rain that had heaved down the whole day had blown out over the coast, leaving the evening stunned and heavy. More to come later. The bridge was furred lightly, like a coated tongue. Billy came to it with a taste of buckfast sweet on his lips, body and blood. They do say a drinker will look for any excuse. With the simmer of slime in his throat, 
he mounts the slope to the bushes, beats about for his bearings, then shuffles round and puts his head as close as he can manage to where Leanne had hers, bobs his face like an inexpert girl, peering to the left and right, and sees something there, indeed, a black and revolving thing, down by the ash tree near the bridge. He forces himself up and forward, first a low object, dark and round against the tree. Now he makes it out, Archibald's brown tweed cap, leant like a memorial against the trunk. A slow rise of the eyes, take your time, Billy. Archibald's boots at belly level, slowly swinging. Higher, the contorted hands. Higher still, the dark tilted head, the unspeakable eyes. Billy collapses at the foot of the ash with his nails clawing down his face. And now he rises to his feet, reaches with calm assurance, lifts up Da's cap and plants it on his own head, produces a knife, stolen perhaps from Gus in the digger, and cuts down the body of Archibald. One noble tear runs down his cheek. He can't save Da, but he can save himself. Lays his father gently on the grass. Good man, Billy. Walks away with straight back to find a house with a telephone. But that isn't what happened. He feels the slime falter just at the tip of his reach. He seizes the cap and vomits into it drops it and runs with piss down his trousers right up into the heights where he flips the finger at Kieran McKendry outside the off-licence and gets a broken nose for his alibi, leaves Da hanging there to greet what the Herald will call a member of the public, some poor wee doll doing her walk of shame at five o'clock tomorrow morning. A groan sounds from beneath the bridge and on the tree every twig titters like a hanged soul. Prostrate on the deck, Billy licked and writhed and howled for the devil. He didn't turn when the yahoos arrived behind him. Ryan, son of Gus, fathered at 15, put his foot on the bridge first. The fuck? Look at this bastard! The laugh rose in Billy. Giggle-headed fucker so you are! Billy stopped laughing, wriggled to his knees, slowly raised his hands. Sing us a song, Billy! Almost with joy, he lifted his voice in music. As I was walking down the road. And your fiddles, boys! Ryan and the Yahoos lifted their arms, soared and twinkled fingers over empty air. Without emotion, Billy watched Ryan raise his boot. So early in the morning. Thump. He felt his forearm crack. You got a note wrong. I met a young girl. Thump. Start again. On the third bar of his sixth time around, they cracked his face to the ground. Billy stopped singing. He ran his tongue along the green the final time, turned a broken cheek upward. Sure, I'm your Uncle Billy, boys. Sure, I'm your Uncle Billy. Ryan, son of Gus, raised the heel of his boot, and all that had made up the living Billy McLaughlin distilled into the drop of blood that oozed over the crack and down through it. 
the devil blotted him up with a finger and licked him away. First a long calmness, then a jolt awake. A slow understanding, the head on him. Billy McLaughlin arriving drunk to his own immortality. Haven't seen you in a while, Billy boy. A chorus of voices, for the devil is legion, his gang, his company, at last. So, hell's in the burn, is it now? At a boy, Billy, you could break the jaw of a fishmonger with spirit like that. Is this the afterlife? Only if you wants us, says the devil. He scoops a palmful of burn water, leans over, and shows Billy a host of figures shifting within the reflection. Archibald's face, all white and whole again. Happy under the bridge, he waits, listening to feet and wheels, revelling in the plurality of himself, an eternity's worth of stories. The devil has a long memory, like flypaper, with the same sorts of things stuck across it. He plunges his face under water and inhales deep, rises dripping and breathes murk upwards like a carnival water-eater. Fingers of mist rise through the crevices and plaster slime across the deck. Somebody new will come, looking. One of these nights, Billy crouches, chattering spells to bring the eye to the crack, to spin the cycle of life and water. The Noella Bice podcast is produced in a small back room in the Shimasini Centre. Still World's Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Bice Press, with thanks to Ruby Colley for her music.